HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Good afternoon and welcome. Yes, it's that time of the week and that time of day. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Today we're going to be talking uh, to Saru Jayaraman, uh, who is the co-founder and co-director of the Restaurant Opportunities Center United and the director of the Food Labor Research Center at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, uh, Saru founded, co-founded Rock uh, right after uh, the World Trade Center went down, um, and it now has more than 18,000 worker members and 150 employer partners, uh, along with several thousand consumer members in over 30 cities nationwide. She has appeared on many, many um, important news programs, including, um, well, I'm not even going to tell you, but I will tell you that she's listed in CNN's top 10 visionary women and recognized as a champion of change by the White House in 2014 and a James Beard Foundation Leadership Award in 2015. And she's here today to talk about her new book, Forked, a new standard for American dining. The book just came out from Oxford University Press. Welcome to the program, Saru. Thanks so much. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Actually, um, you do not know this, but I heard you speak at uh, Danny Nirenberg's Food Tank Summit last year in Washington, and I just thought you were like the bee's knees. So when your publicist (laughs) asked me about would I be interested, I was like, yes, indeed, I most certainly would, because you were such (laughs) a galvanizing speaker. So why don't we start the interview just quickly, um, tell people what Rock is and what do you guys do? Sure. So we are a national organization dedicated to better wages and working conditions in this industry, which is the second largest and absolute fastest growing sector of the U.S. economy. Mm. Restaurant industry is over 11 million workers. And we mobilize workers, employers, and consumers, so all three stakeholders, to work towards the goal of better wages and working conditions. Because unfortunately, although this industry is the second largest and fastest growing, it continues to be the absolute lowest paying employer in the United States. 
And that's across the board in the food chain. That's not just restaurant workers either, right? That's we're also including agricultural workers. I know that's not part of your organization, but just saying in the food chain overall, yeah. you go from agriculture to meatpacking to restaurants and they're all getting screwed, correct? That's right. Yeah. So I, both, I have two hats. I run the Restaurant Opportunity Center where we work on better wages in the restaurant industry, but I also run a research center at UC Berkeley looking at workers throughout the food system. Uh And yes, of the 10 lowest paying jobs in America every year, uh, eight are food system jobs, seven are actually restaurant jobs, so the restaurant industry, believe it or not, is the absolute lowest paying employer. Unbelievable. The eighth lowest paying job in America is, of course, farm workers. Right. So eight of the 10 lowest paying jobs are in the food system. Yeah. Incredible. And yet we all eat and we all spend money on food. So it's really amazing. So tell us, a, right. tell us a little bit about Forked and why you decided to write this book, because I know you've, you've written other books in the past. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I did write another book that came out in 2013 called Behind the Kitchen Door that really exposed wages and working conditions in this industry and focused on the stories of workers um, that were really struggling in this industry. This book is really the stories of employers because what we found, especially over the last many years, is that there are fabulous restaurant owners actually proving that you can take what we call the high road to profitability. That's the path that includes livable wages and good working conditions and benefits. You can take that path and succeed and thrive and make profit, not in spite of paying your workers well, but actually because you pay your workers well. So we profile that those employers that are doing the right thing, everybody from Tom Colicchio to Zingerman's Restaurants in Ann Arbor, Michigan, to um, In-N-Out Burger, actually mm-hmm. is a fabulous employer. So we interview lots and lots of companies that are doing it right and compare them to companies that are doing it wrong. And this book also shares some of the research we've done on unveiling the history of tipping and the tip minimum wage. And so this book kind of uncovers uh, both the history of this industry and stories of employers that are doing it right. Well, uh, to, to talk about tipping, because uh, since that's one of the questions I had, um, uh, you know, written up for this, um, give us a connection. What is the connection? You make the connection to slave labor from the past and, and how tipping sort of evolved out of that. Um, why don't you make that uh, connection for the listeners? What, what is that all about? Yeah. Yeah, so it turns out tipping actually didn't originate in the United States. It's something I didn't even know before doing research for this book. It it originated in Europe. It really was a vestige of the feudal system. So it was for, you know, the the aristocratic homes of feudal Europe. Uh, Aristocrats would tip the servants on top of a wage. And that idea of tipping kind of came to the States in the 1850s and 1860s. It was due to rich Americans traveling to Europe and coming back and trying to show off that they knew the rules of Europe. Well, uh, (laughs) at that time, uh, there was a massive anti-tipping movement in America. Actually, Americans generally resoundingly rejected the idea around the turn of the century. They said this is un-American, undemocratic, and actually six states passed complete bans on tipping. Amazing. And that... Yeah, that movement actually spread to Europe and succeeded in Europe, which is why there's very little tipping in Europe. But here in the States, we went in the opposite direction because of the restaurant industry and the restaurant association, which actually lobbied to say, no, we should have the right to hire newly freed slaves and not pay them anything and let them live on customer tips. So because tipping actually came to the States right around the time of emancipation, some of the first tipped workers were newly free slaves, and they were basically forced to live on tips without a wage. 
And that idea that this industry alone could get away with not paying these workers anything at all and then let them live on customer tips after all they were black and frankly fairly valueless at that time in American mm. society, um, you know, that idea was codified into law in 1938 as part of the New Deal, the very first minimum wage law that passed in this country, which said you have the right to the minimum wage either through wages or through tips, which gave tip workers the right to a $0 minimum wage. Wow. And we went from a $0 minimum wage in 1938 to a whopping $2.13 an hour, which is the current federal minimum wage for tipped workers in the United States. So over that almost century, 100-year period, the Restaurant Association, which represents the Fortune 500 chains, has argued it's okay, you know, we don't have to pay these workers anything almost at all. They earn tips, they're making a ton of money in tips, and they <laughs> paint the picture of a white guy working at a fancy steakhouse, when in fact 70% of tipped workers in America at this time are women, and right. they're women who work at IHOP and Applebee's and live in extreme poverty and suffer from a lot of sexual harassment. Yeah, you made it. <clears throat> the sexual harassment came up again and again, and I have to say that having worked in kitchens myself, I can attest to the fact that it was pretty much constant. I mean, of course, at the time, I didn't think of it as sexual harassment. It was just fun and games. But, you know, times change. What can I tell you? It certainly was endemic. I mean, I never worked in a kitchen that did not um, function largely on the humor of, uh, you know, <laughs> of sexual harassment, yeah. you know, and yeah. around people's yeah. sex lives. I mean, it was like, and it wasn't just directed at women. I mean, we gave as good as we got, to be that's honest. Right. But, you know, um, that's right. but that's, uh, you know, it definitely was the culture for sure. Um, you, you mentioned that there are three major issues for staff in typical restaurant work. And I, and I also want to, I want to once again, make the point that you just did, which is that we're talking about, we're not talking about fine dining establishments. We are talking about these major chains owned by Darden, um, owned. Yeah. by, uh, I don't know, you know, places that people are familiar with besides Applebee's, Applebee's um, yes. Capital Grill, yes. which is the upscale version, um, exactly. Olive Garden, uh, you know, the chains that are literally all over the country and where the checks really are not very large. Thus, the idea that somebody could live off the tips from a check for $16 or 20 bucks is really not a realistic assessment. So what are the three That's biggest right. issues for um, people in that le on that level of restaurant work? Yeah, so definitely poverty and the instability of of your of your wages is the number one issue. You know, right. when you earn two dollars or three dollars or four dollars, as it is in most states, you never because you're living off tips. Your wages are so low from your employer; they go entirely to taxes. You're living almost entirely off tips. Yeah, and when you live off of tips, you never know how much you're going to earn from day to day, week to week, month to month. Your your wages you know, fluctuate wildly, but your bills don't. And so we actually have the highest rate of homelessness of any occupation in the United States because people just can't pay the bills when they never know how much they're going to earn. Yeah. So that's number one. Um, number two is the lack of paid sick days and benefits. So, again, if you don't have, if you're not paid to take time off, and actually the opposite is true in our industry, a lot of times you get fired for taking a day off when mm -hmm. you're sick or retaliated against. Um, when you can't take a day off and you have to rely on tips as your income, you will go to work no matter what condition you're in. You, yeah. you know, we have stories of people working with typhoid fever and H1N1 and oh just anything, hepatitis, um, because they have no choice. Yeah. Fired if they don't. And they know the only way to make an income is to go to work and get those tips. So that's number two. 
it really is a pretty severe race and gender discrimination and harassment in our industry. So in terms of race, you know, you talked about the difference between fine dining and the Applebee's and IHOP of the world. Well, people of color are the ones who work largely in the Red Lobsters and Olive Gardens and IHOPs, and it's women of color serving in those restaurants, and that's where the majority of restaurant workers work. You know, you know those great fine dining steakhouse server jobs that the industry loves to talk about are held almost exclusively by white men. And so there is yeah. a there is still a racial segregation issue here. And then for women, I mean, this issue of sexual harassment is literally the worst in our industry of any industry in the United States. It's actually five times the rate of any other industry in the United States. Wow. And it's, 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 it's exactly what you said. It's the biggest problem in my mind is that most people in our industry don't even recognize it as sexual harassment. It's right. so commonplace. It's so normalized. Um, you know, being grabbed or talked to in a certain way or just made uncomfortable is yeah. so normalized that most workers would not even call it sexual harassment, even though that legally is what it is. <laughs> right. Um, and so, you know, we it's really sad because beyond the six million women who work in this industry and put up with this every day of their lives from customers, coworkers and management, actually, our research shows these women are encouraged by management to dress more sexy, show more cleavage, wear tighter clothing sure. so that they can make more money and tips. On top of that, you've got millions more young women for whom this is their first job in high school, college, or graduate school, and this is how they're introduced to the world of work. And so when I've been on book tour, the thing that makes me the saddest is the number of women who come up to me and say, you know, I am now a teacher, an organizer, a lawyer, whatever, I've moved on, but I've been sexually harassed recently on my current job, and I didn't do anything about it because it was never as bad as it was when I was a young woman working in restaurants, <laughs> which means we're setting the standard for all women in America as to what's acceptable and tolerable in the workplace. It is, it is amazing how much everybody you know does it and gets away with it and doesn't think about it, and yet... It really is, you know, ultimately, um, you know, it's kind of a heavy load to carry if you're a exactly. young woman. It's really, it's a load. Exactly. Um, you know, yep. We do talk about the chains. Um, a lot of the chains are, are also uh, franchised. And I, I was struck by how many examples of franchise restaurants you bring up in your book um, as kind of a major cause for a lot of the bad labor practices that you catalog. So do you think that franchising is, because in, in that case, the, 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 the chain itself is, is, is one entity and it's lending its name and its practices to an independent operator, right? Right, And yeah. so do you think that that model in and of itself leads to some of these unfortunate labor practices? Or you know, it- uh, things have changed over the last couple of years. The, the Labor Board, the National Labor Relations Board, has actually ruled that the major corporations still have responsibility for the way workers are treated, even in a franchise operation. Mm-hmm. So I don't actually think it's the nature of franchising. I think uh, companies still have the ability and power to say, you know, you if you're going to use our name, you have to pay people a certain wage, you have to treat people a certain way, and they should have to do that because they do that with the quality of the food, they do that with a lot of other issues, so there's no reason why they couldn't also do it with regard to wages and working conditions. So I don't think it's necessarily, I, I do think in some instances, like I write about Subway, yeah. and how Subway just, you know, their growth model was grow, grow, grow at all costs. You know, and and they really use the franchising model to, to do that. I do think in some cases 
really rapid growth can lead to some of these issues, and maybe franchising is a part of it. But it's not the it's not the sole reason. I mean, Subway could still tell all of its franchise operators, as a requirement of franchising with Subway, you have to pay people as wage, you have to treat people in a certain way, you have to comply with certain laws, and they don't. They just don't. They they take a hands off approach, and I think that's the problem. Yeah. And I mean, who, which one of them, which one of those big chains is going to want to allocate the resources, the personnel to inspecting the many the hundreds, if not thousands of locations to which they have franchised their name? Right. So that right. is a problem. Yeah. What about um, are some or some or many of these restaurants publicly traded? I mean, I'm wondering if there's like a shareholder aspect of this, um, either, you know, they're like trying to squeeze the profit so hard that they will, uh, you know, engage in wage theft or various forms. Of, of mistreatment um, in order to squeeze, uh, you know, like make people come in early and then give them nothing to do and then not pay them yeah. for that extra money, yeah. for that extra time and stuff. Yeah, a lot of these chains, yes, are publicly traded. And I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily a shareholders. I've been to shareholder meetings of Darden, which is the parent company of Olive Garden and mm-hmm. Capital Girl Steakhouse and Longhorn Steakhouse. They're the world's largest full-service restaurant company, actually. And I've seen longtime shareholders get up and say to the board, you really should pay and treat your workers well. You're creating liability for us. And our yeah. best folks are walking away from our restaurants and going to work elsewhere. And so stop it. But what did happen in Darden and in the case of many of these restaurants is that a hedge fund took over. And so we are seeing hedge fund takeovers of publicly traded companies. And in those cases, we're seeing these hedge funds that really couldn't care less about people, couldn't care yeah. less about the quality of the food. And yes, in those cases, you're seeing this squeezing happen and just like to, to ridiculous lengths. Like in the case of Darden, a shareholder called Starboard Value, I mean, a hedge fund called Starboard came in and took over and essentially said, well, we're going to get rid of all the non-tipped employees or lots of them, and we're going to replace them with tipped employees because we can pay them as little as $2.13 an hour and have them do what the non-tipped employees used to do. So you're seeing these hedge funds come in and do these horrible and sometimes illegal things just to squeeze profits. But there still is an avenue for shareholders to really be active, and we've seen them be active and say, no, we won't put up with this and introduce resolutions and force the company to do things. It's just a matter of consumers and shareholders speaking up. Wow, that's that's fascinating because there's, there are a lot of parallels there with what's happening in agricultural uh, assets with hedge funds and pension funds yes. investing in yes. heavily in land grabs. Uh, around yes. the world, and that's something I've been doing a lot of reading about. And it's it's there's so many parallels here; it's just incredible. Um, just to kind of give people a sense of the 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 money we're talking about, can you describe the the profits of a chain like a McDonald's or an Olive Garden or you know one of these other full service or quick service restaurants, um, and how the rest of us are effectively subsidizing them? I mean, because by paying that's them right. a non minimum wage or less than a minimum wage, we're essentially you know, paying for these folks. So give us a, give us the, the figures on that. Yeah. I mean, so, so the profit margin for the industry nationally is 4 to 5%, which might sound small until you know that Walmart's profit margin, and Walmart is generally considered one of the most profitable companies in the world, yeah. is 1%. And so largely you're talking about very high volume chains 
that are just making literally millions of dollars. And every year, even through the economic recession, every year over the last decade or more, the Restaurant Association has announced record-breaking profit in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Gee whiz. And so the leaders of the National Restaurant Association are McDonald's, Darden, uh, Yum Brands, which is Taco Bell, right. and Pizza Hut, and Disney. And these four chains are making in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Their CEOs make between 500 and 800 times what the line-level workers make. And yes, in terms of subsidies, we as taxpayers are paying a total of $16.5 billion every year to subsidize workers' survival in these multi-billion dollar companies. So we pay taxpayer money for these workers to survive on food stamps and Medicaid and all kinds of different welfare programs because these workers cannot survive on the poverty wages they're receiving from the Olive Garden or from the Capitol Grill even, or from McDonald's. And so uh, in the case of tipped workers, we're actually doubly subsidizing these restaurants because we pay for their workers' wages through our tips. You know, when workers earn $2, $3 an hour, we're paying their workers' wages. You still there? We're subsidizing their workers' survival through taxpayer-funded public assistance. Incredible. Why don't we take a short break here uh, and have a sponsor drop, and we'll be right back with uh, Saru Jayaraman uh, to talk more about Forked, her new book on American dining. So stay tuned. This is called Bad Citizen by Bad Citizen. We'll be right back. there. It's Steve Jenkins. I'm with Fairway Markets. White Leghorn, Red Wattle, Bourbon Red, Navajo Churro. Well, these aren't names you're likely to hear at a Fairway butcher counter or any other counter today, but before the rise of factory farming, you would have. And at Heritage Foods USA, you still do. Heritage Foods USA exists to promote genetic diversity, small family farms, and a fully traceable food supply. You see, we believe the best way to help a family farmer is to buy from them. And Heritage Foods is honored to represent a network of family farmers and artisanal producers whose work presents an immeasurable gift to our food system and to biodiversity. The meat we celebrate, whether it's Heritage Turkey, Japanese Steaks, Berkshire Pork, or Navajo Churro Lamb Chops is the righteous kind from healthy animals of sound genetics that have been treated humanely and allowed to pursue their natural instincts. It's a simple fact. Animals raised according to this philosophy taste better. And as we like to say, you have to eat them to save them. Visit us at HeritageFoodsUSA.com for more information. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. I'm talking today to Saro Jayaraman, who is uh, the author of Forked, 
Uh, and I need to look for your A New Standard for American Dining. Her book just came out from Oxford University Press. Um, so part of the book is you, you, have, you do a comparison between the high road and the low road. So let's talk a little bit about the companies that do do it right. You, you mentioned Chipotle, In-N-Out, Zingerman's. What are they doing and how much does it, you know, that's better? And how much does it cost them to do it as in, say, health benefits or paid sick days or, uh, you know, employee training and, and development, that kind of stuff. I'm assuming that they all have programs somewhat like that. Yeah. Yeah. So what are they doing? They're providing, in many cases, not just livable wages, but what Paul Saginaw, the owner of Zingerman's, like to call thriveable wages, mm-hmm. wages that allow people to actually thrive. Because, you know, I think these employers actually see their employees as human beings who they want to see grow and develop. They also see them as professionals. And in any other profession, you want to allow a professional to thrive so that they can continue to grow with the company. So they provide thrivable wages. In terms of benefits, they're providing paid sick days. People can take a day off when they're sick. But they're also providing other forms of paid time off, vacation time, you know, family leave time so you can take care of a sick loved one. Uh, and then in terms of advancement, like as I, as I said, if you see these folks as professionals, you're providing them with opportunities to advance. You're providing them with training, a very clear pathway that allows them to know how to move up a ladder. You're mm. providing them with all the opportunities you would provide any other professional. Now, these companies that, have all, that I described in this book are all growing. They're all growing. They're succeeding. Many have been around for a very long time, and they're doing well because they treat their workers well, not in spite of it. And the reason is, the re- how they can afford it is really much less ter- employee turnover than the average restaurant company. This, this industry has the highest rates of turnover of any industry in the United States, which means, you know, you, these companies, most of them, are having to replace workers, at, you know, sometimes every, every couple months. Yeah. They say the average turnover rate in this industry is about 300%. With 300%, that means three turns in one position in one year. That's very costly, and it's a very short-sighted sort of investment approach to not see the costs that are involved with having to rehire and retrain every time workers move on because the wages are too low or the benefits are too low or there's no opportunity to move up. Right. So these, employ- these employers are seeing far less turnover, and they're saving in that way. They're seeing much higher productivity and profitability, and especially in a customer service profession, you want workers who are happy, who will learn how to upsell well, who will represent the company well, who will you know, express to the diner kind of a really good experience for themselves that then the customers can really feel. And so I think that is how these companies are succeeding is by actually treating their workers well, investing that in them. And thus allowing for a much better dining experience. Yeah, I, that totally makes sense to me. But I, I have to say that I, I'm still kind of curious because in the meatpacking industry, they have 100% turnover. I mean, it's like people come and go like widgets and they have the same problem with training. And they have decided that it's better to keep people at a very low wage and just put up with having to retrain, maybe because it's a less skillful job. I don't know. But um, but that's a bit. I mean, the the wage issue, you know, and the and the turnover issue in the meatpacking industry is is just as great. And um, and they don't seem to be um, they don't seem to be you know moving into the Zingerman's model. But but not, 
<laughs> but neither are the other <laughs> restaurants. Like if the, if if this no, if this example right. is out there shining like a beacon for all of them, it's amazing to me that that they haven't uh, you know figured this out to any greater extent than they have. Why do you suppose that it, is? It is amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. It's most of low wage America. It's, it's most of the food system really yeah. that follows this model, and most of retail. And it's because, again, it's a short term profit making model. You, you look at the very short term. Maybe it has to do with the fact that you know the way short shareholder reports are presented mm. in public companies is quarterly as opposed to annually, or even looking over a series of years. And so if you're looking quarter by quarter, all you want to do is keep costs as low as humanly possible. Yeah. And you're not really thinking about any kind of long-term investment in the success of the business, particularly the hedge funds that could care less about right. the long-term success of the business. They're really thinking very short-term. So why hasn't this picked up? You know, why haven't people seen these examples? Partly, there are industry lobbies like the Restaurant Association. I'm sure there's a similar lobby in um meat process. Oh, yeah. I know there is a chicken and poultry you do. Yeah. Uh, association that promotes this idea that there is no other way of doing business. This is the only way to do business. It is to keep wages as low as possible, and they lobby really vitriolically on, in Congress and state legislatures saying we would die as an industry if we had to pay more. And so part of the point of this book is to show actually that's so not true. There's so many companies out there that are thriving, doing really well, growing doing it differently. And so part of it really is that most companies in America just don't know any other way of doing business because this is the business model that's been put out by the big trade lobbies. Right. So that's part of it. And and that's why for us, it's not actually about convincing restaurant by restaurant that they really should take a look at this other model. Although that is part of what the book is about. It's showing that there are other models. It's about ultimately passing policy that would lift the standards for all workers, meatpacking workers, restaurant workers, farm workers across the board because we can move whole industries to the high road through policy rather than yeah. trying to move company by company and convince them that they have a short-sighted business model. Yeah, you know? yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, so that, that leads me right into my next question, which is, do you actually, does your group go to Congress, to Capitol Hill and lobby? Are you teaming up with other food chain worker groups uh, uh, to, you know, to work on Congress, to meet with Cong- congressional membership? Um, and if you are, who are your congressional allies? Like, who's on your side and who's advocating for you? Yeah, so we definitely have bills in Congress. And yes, we've been working closely with um, workers throughout the food chain. We actually created something called the Food Chain Workers Alliance, yeah. which includes farm workers and meat and poultry processing workers and workers throughout the food chain. And with them and many other organizations around the country, we have actually, we do have bills moving in Congress, two of them, uh, Patty Murray in the Senate and Bobby Scott in the House introduced a bill proposing $12 uh, as a minimum wage and fully eliminate full elimination of this lower wage for tipped workers. Just get rid of completely the right. two-tiered wage system. And then a second bill was introduced last May by Bernie Sanders in the Senate and Keith Ellison in the House pro- proposing $15 and full elimination of the two-tiered wage system of the lower wage for tipped workers. But we know that nothing's going to move right now in Congress on these bills, and so our strategy is to move lots and lots of state and local minimum wage fights, you know, right. raise the minimum wage in many, many states and cities, and that increase would affect all workers throughout the food system. So we've got what we call one fair wage bills, bills that propose raising the overall minimum wage 
and eliminating that lower wage for tipped workers. We've got that moving in seven or eight states this year, and there will be more states next year. And we think there's tremendous momentum. We think as more and more states move in this direction, ultimately Congress will move as well. Yes, I, I suspect you're right. How much of a role do unions play in, in your world, in the restaurant world? Because I, I, I know there are restaurant unions. Um, where, where do they come down <laughs> yeah. on this stuff? Like, are they are they lobbying for the end of the two-tier wage system, or are they in favor of continuing it and continuing tipped workers? Yeah, they are supportive. Um, unions, there's one union that represents hotel and restaurant workers, mm-hmm. and they have um, a very small percentage of the overall restaurant workforce. So we've really been the organization representing workers in the restaurant industry. They've been focused more on hotels and casinos that unite here. But, yes, they have been supportive of getting rid of this two-tiered wage system. I think, in general, the food system is very, very, very little unionized. I mean, as you know, unionization is on the decline nationally. Mm. And so, you know, I think workers throughout the food system are finding new and different ways to organize um, and come together and demand better wages and working conditions, from the Immokalee workers in Florida to meat and poultry processing workers organizing in northwest Arkansas to restaurant workers organizing all over the country. I think there's a lot of momentum to organize whatever way, whether it's through union or otherwise, just to get together and collectively demand change because it's just too long in coming. It has to be now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the one of my favorite uh, moments in the book is you draw this great parallel between what uh, McDonald's workers in the United States are paid and what the same job gets in Denmark. Can you um, share that with the listeners? It's, yeah, it's like an amazing a, disparity. Yeah. Um, so in Denmark, workers earn $21 an hour, minimum wage. That's everybody, wow. those who um, might be considered front of what we call front of the house, who in America would earn tips, and those in the back and those in fast food. The minimum wage for all workers is $21 an hour. And this was really featured in a New York Times article a year or two ago, and they actually interviewed the guy who runs all the food service operations for the Copenhagen airport. And um, they asked him, you know, well, why do you pay 21 and how do you manage? And he said, well, if we didn't pay this wage, then workers would be reliant on the government for public assistance, and that would be a sign of a failed society. (laughs) And that, to me, yeah, (laughs) that to me is just, so indicative of, yeah. of what we have. I mean, the fact that we think it's somehow normal for the largest sector of our economy to be living on public assistance while they're working full-time and often multiple jobs, yeah. why we think that's normal is insane. It's not normal at all. People no. shouldn't be working multiple jobs and still living on public assistance. And it's not a small portion of the economy. Right now, one in three American workers works full-time and lives in poverty. By 2020, some people are saying it'll be one in two, meaning half of all working Americans. Right. And so for everybody who's listening who cares about organic food and well-treated animals and just the food system in general, who is going to pay for that food when half of America can't afford to put food on their families? Who's going to pay for it? Yeah. You know, so I think if, if we as a nation and especially the food movement doesn't start to really pay attention to the fact that we're moving to be- become essentially a poverty wage nation. Yeah. 
you know, we're not, the GDP is not going to go anywhere. Nobody's going to spend on anything. No, no great organic farmer is going to have anybody who will buy their products because nobody can afford to. Right, right, right. It's just, an, it's an amazing, uh, I just found that an extraordinary statistic. Um, to talk a little bit more about the no tip, I mean, you know, you, you make the point that a lot of fine dining restaurants, and certainly in New York, that's happening. I think, you know, the Union Square Group has gone to uh, no tip uh, policy and other major, you know, certainly uh, fine dining establishments have, have moved to that. But but there's still a lot of them. And I've talked to a lot of chefs who feel like they can't afford to pay their staff more or as much as they're making in tips now. So how how do you explain to them? How do you what is the best way do you, you think to manage those extra uh, personnel costs without having to raise the menu prices uh, enough to sort of take up the slack? Like, wh- how do you yeah. convince somebody that this is really a good move and not a disastrous yeah. move? Well, uh, I would say the first thing that I would say to any employer out there who actually is open to considering this but doesn't know how is to join our High Road Employer Association, RAVE. We now have 175 restaurant owners across the country that have joined some very large companies like Union Square Hospitality Group and you know, uh, mm-hmm. very large companies, Ingerman, all the way down to small mom-and-pop restaurants around the country. And we provide a lot of peer support and training and technical education for employers as to how they can actually make their P&Ls work, their, their profit and loss statements, their cash flows work so that they can raise wages and still maintain a really profitable business. So there is help out there, and we want to be able to provide it. But I will say also I think there are two different issues here. One is some restaurants are moving to eliminate tipping altogether. And what we're proposing is actually a, a first step. Not We're not proposing legislating elimination of tipping. We wouldn't do that. What we're doing right now is proposing uh, getting rid of this horrible two-tiered wage system, yeah. You know, having everybody be paid one fair minimum wage, which actually the two-tiered wage system is a liability for employers Right now, I mean, employers right now have to ensure that tips make up the difference between the lower wage and the regular minimum wage for every hour a worker works. That's incredibly onerous and creates a lot of lawsuits, um, which is why a lot of employers have come to our side. So I think one key step is even if people aren't ready to do it themselves, they can still be part of an association that's working on policy change because policy change makes it easier. When everybody has to do the same thing at once, you're not at a competitive disadvantage. The floor goes up and everybody can move up together. Everybody can learn together about how to make it work. Right. I think just joining the association, learning how to make it work for you, but then also being a part of policy change, which makes it easier for everybody, um, is possible. But then again, for folks who want to put, you know, take the big steps, go all the way to either eliminate tip minimum wage in their own restaurant or tip, tipping altogether, you know, Danny Myers Group is a part of our association and is really excited to help work with us and others to help other restaurants think about going in this direction too. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough, it's a tough call. I mean, the margins are so slim in restaurants. I really understand why you don't want to be, you want to outsource that, that part of the, uh, <laughs> of the cost of doing business as much as you can. Yes. Let the customers pay that extra yeah. bit as if people wouldn't recognize. I mean, I don't know, you know, it's like, so if you raise your prices on the menu by a dollar for every single item, am I going to be mad when I don't have to put down a $25 tip at the end of the meal? I don't know. You know, it's like, I, I think it's okay to do that, but okay. <laughs> 
Um, you would think, yeah. I mean, you know, certainly just, that's the European system. Yeah, I mean, for them, it's service compris. It's already figured into the cost of doing business. You know, exactly. there's no, there's no exactly. questions about it. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing I really noticed also, I mean, as we've discussed uh, throughout the program, actually, is that the problems uh, that are faced by restaurant workers are pretty much exactly the same as those in any other part of the agricultural food chain or the meatpacking industry or whatever. And a lot of these problems are all about undocumented workers and the lack of immigration policy in this country. How much do you think uh, immigration reform would change this picture? And what would immigration reform look to look like to your constituency? In other words, how do you think restaurant workers in general feel about the idea of immigration reform, especially if it becomes... Um, you know, potentially a liability for them in the sense of like, well, you can work here for three years, but then you have to go home or, you know, something like that, which is one of the one of the many things that are being bandied about in Congress. Right. Right. You know, um, I think that that would be a problem. So we're not in favor of immigration reform that would set up a guest worker program that would essentially be that you have to be here for a short right. period of time and then go back. We would only be in favor of immigration reform that actually provides people with a real path to citizenship because otherwise, <laughs> quote-unquote, immigration reform that simply provides employers with essentially disposable workers yeah. really just makes the problem worse. And the problem is that the way the immigration system is set up right now is providing a very cheap labor pool that's very afraid to really speak up for yeah. itself. And so we need an immigration system that will allow people to have rights in this country, to move up a ladder to a, you know, to a, to a livable wage job that would allow them to move on a path to citizenship. That's what we actually need for workers throughout the food system. And stop pretending like these workers aren't already here and a vast majority <laughs> of who is actually getting food to our table. They are here. We wouldn't survive as a food system or as a nation without them. And so we really need to allow them to come out of the shadows and actually be able to get their full due like every other worker in America. Right. Um, right now, the way it's set up really only benefits one group of people, and that's the very large corporate CEOs and boards right. that just want to be able to, again, squeeze workers as much as they can. Yeah. I mean, it's I, to me, I, I'm, you know, being uh, sort of an aging hippie, I, I see a conspiracy under every rock. And so um, and so my my sense is, is that the fact that we haven't been able to pass any kind of meaningful immigration reform or policy of any kind is beca simply because of these corporations who don't want to have right. to pay their workers. They don't want to change or solve this problem. Problem because it benefits them That's from right. the point of view of not having to pay and also being allowed to commit these egregious abuses of wage theft, discrimination, and you know the whole catalog of, of ills that uh, represent our food chain workers. Um, I want to just give you a couple That's minutes right. to talk about your restaurant colors, what you've been doing with that. Tell us a little bit about that. Of course, I'm all about promoting you. You know that's what this is for. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And rock. So Thank you know you've you so got a couple much. minutes yes, here. Um, yeah. Sure. Well, we have, yes, our own restaurants. They're called Colors, one in New York, one in Detroit, Michigan. We're opening three more in Oakland, New Orleans, Wait. and Washington, D.C. In these restaurants during the day, we actually train thousands of workers, um, immigrants, people of color, women, to move up the ladder into fine dining service and bartending. So we feel like in a lot of the cities that we do have our own restaurants and we're training workers, we're able to not only provide a service to workers, but also to employers who are getting great trained workers and also to customers who end up with a better service as a result of a real right. 
professional training program that really doesn't exist anywhere else in terms of fine dining service and bartending. Um, so the restaurants are during the day training programs, but in the evening are open for dinner service. And in New York, uh, it's completely gluten-free. We actually have, we are actually only one of four 100% gluten-free restaurants in the city. It's at 417 Lafayette in Astor Place. It's called Colors. There's some amazing dishes that you would never imagine in a million years are gluten-free, but they are from fried chicken to a chocolate cake to just amazing food. It's really delicious. It's been named uh, the top gluten-free restaurant in the city by Celiac Society of Columbia. So I think um, really encourage people to go try it out. It's an after place. Um, and support not just, you know, the restaurant and, and get good food, but also support the workers that are getting training as part of the restaurant. Well, that's what I love about it is that it provides training and training opportunities for people who otherwise really would never sort of break out of the McDonald's ghetto. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you got to get, exactly. you got to get people some exposure to something besides quick service restaurants or they never will be able to move up. That's right. Well, listen, honey, thank well, you. Well, not just quick service. Well, yeah, sure. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Full service. No, first full service. Oh, I mean the whole, also, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Look, we have so many workers who are bussers and runners and fine dining mm. restaurants never have the opportunity to move up to a waiter. And that's what it's all about. Well, yeah, that's another whole program, though. That's just that's just straight up discrimination, girl. <laughs> um, so, tell us yeah, about exactly. where else are you going to be going with uh, with Forked? Are you giving any uh, readings? Are you appearing anywhere? Yes. We need to like hear yes. all that. Give your website. I'm going to be sure everybody. If everybody could go to forkedthebook.com, you'll not only find my book tour information, you'll also see information because this rest, this book really tells you who's doing it right and who's doing it wrong. We have a mobile app that allows you to look at um, just when you eat out, the restaurants in your area, who's doing it right, who's doing it wrong. You can find all of that at forktothebook.com. Um, this Thursday, I'll be in Washington, D.C. at the Public Welfare Foundation and then New York. And it goes on and on from there. And you can find all the information <laughs> at forktothebook.com. Well, that's great. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, congratulations on the book. Thank you for writing it. And uh, all the best with the tour. I hope uh, people, you know, snap this up and really get a sense of what what it means to be a food chain worker in this country and why we need to change the system. Um, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you to my sponsor, Heritage Foods USA. I'll be heading over there myself <laughs> right now. And uh, thanks to my engineer, as always, Jack Inslee. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening, folks. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 